Endless Hustle presented by Doc Swinson's, the legendary whiskey blenders from Ferndale, Washington. I absolutely love Doc Swinson's, and if you haven't tried it, go to their website and check out their selection. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? All right, Endless Hustlers, episode 122 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. We are back, and I am back. It's Arthur Cade at the helm here of your favorite show, hopefully your favorite show. We got an unbelievable triple header ahead. First up, we've got SNL legend Chris Kattan. He has a new movie called Famous Out, one of my all-time favorites. I love Night at the Roxbury, so being able to talk to him about his career, SNL, and of course the new movie was just awesome. Next up, one of the kings of the Bachelor franchise, and now helming one of the biggest podcasts on the planet, The Vile Files. We have Nick Vile joining us. We're also talking about his love of the Green Bay Packers, who may just be the best team in football right now, by the way. And then we're finishing up the episode with Major League Baseball pitcher Ross Stripling. Fantastic story for this guy, because not only is he a professional baseball player, He's also a full-time financial advisor. And as you guys know, I'm a former financial advisor. So trying to figure out how he's balancing both was just intriguing. But we're also talking about just life as a major league pitcher and branding and podcasting, pretty much the whole gamut. Let's kick this episode off. First up, Chris Kattan. All right, we've got a great day on The Endless Hustles. I'm joined by a comedy legend and a dude I grew up watching on SNL and that I love a ton, Chris Kattan. Chris, congratulations. First of all, great to have you on the show. And congratulations, brand new movie, Famous. You're, you're casting people in this one. I love it. So I'm going to throw the ball to you. What's everybody getting with Famous? Uh, well, I think, uh, I, I, you know, it was a great cast to, to be part of. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a really strong cast, and uh, you know they work together for a while in this mo- in this movie because they're in. It was a play prior to it being a film, and um, you know, and it was um, so the they gelled and they were so strong, you know. So when I came on, they're already like really locked into their characters, uh, which actually uh, worked for my character because I play an outsider of their situations of what they're going through, you know, as uh, young actors uh, in the 90s. So, because I play a, a film director that's concerned about the lead character, Jason, and what he might be going through uh, as an actor. So um, it actually was kind of, in a way, perfect. Because <laughs> I play that as an outsider, concerned. Ensemble cast, that can be such a tricky thing. You obviously got to experience it at the most elite level with SNL. When when does an ensemble really start to gel from your experience? Is it something that happens instantaneously? Does it take minutes, hours, years of practice? How does it all work? Uh, it, it, um, it, well, I, I, I think it does happen instantaneously sometimes it's almost like a relationship in a way you know like when you fall in love I guess a little bit like that I mean uh it's like an instant thing or 
like when you're a performer, you're like, oh, wow, we there's this like trust and, and this feeling of being comfortable and, and feeling of, be, of being, you know, yourself around somebody. So when you feel like that, uh, you could really have a lot of fun with someone else when you're performing, you know, uh, in the comedy world, obviously, you know. Uh, I mean, I think that's that's the coolest thing. That's what I miss seeing in comedy, too, is like people connecting, uh, you know, characters connecting and, you know, and I and I love that. You know, I, I was uh, that's what's so great about like the group, the groundlings there where I started. And uh, and that's why I'm doing this show now called Hey Catan, which is uh, just launched on YouTube. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, we're starting it there because, you know, uh, we just want to start and te to test the waters, but it's really uh, starting to blow up. And you and anyone can go there, obviously, because it's YouTube. But if you look up Hey Catan, you know, uh, there are these digital videos where I get a, I get the opportunity to write and direct them and uh, and be in them as well. So it's really cool. Uh, 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 it's a great excuse to uh, get to work with people that you've always wanted to work with, you know. You'd mentioned the groundlings, and it just got me thinking about the traditional route of comedy. It used to be, hey, we're going to start somewhere in New York and Chicago, whether it's Second Story or the groundlings or, or, or just whatever the, the troop was at that moment. You would work your way up. Everybody was fighting for slots on SNL. And then if you kind of were able to make it, you broke out from there. Today, you'd mentioned YouTube and TikTok, and there's so many other avenues. What do you think about the, 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 the difference between the old comedy path versus the ability to break through today? Uh, well, I think it's obviously the internet has changed everything. I mean, completely. And it gives a lot of talented people opportunities to uh, show what they would love to do and perform or, or connect with the audience in the rest of the world or address a message or anything they want would uh that is, you know, of, of importance, you know, hopefully it's important to see, you know, and uh, that's what's a great thing about the internet, you know, um, but, you know, back then it was like, uh, there was only just a few outlets, you know, um, and, um, you know, there was only, you know, like there was SNL, like you said, and there was only, like before us, if you weren't going to try to get on a television show, oops, sorry, somebody was if you weren't trying to get on a, a television show, you know, you were trying to get into a comedy group or something or, you know, and uh, that's what like with the growlings, it's really hard to become a growling cast uh, member, you know, and um, and uh, so it's, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, but it but it trains you to be a better performer as well, you know, and connect with the right people eventually. You know, what? but but I think, you know, there's a lot more opportunity. And that's what's great about like the sketch show. I guess, well, that's a digital video show, I guess. This is shorts. That's what I'm doing. So that's what's on uh, able to be on the Internet. And as well as famous is able to be seen, you know, on the Internet because it's, uh, you know, streaming. It gives more opportunity for uh, filmmakers like Michael, who directed this movie Famous, and for his vision to be seen by... Uh, people that want to see great pieces of work you know uh you know so it's as opposed to going to the theater where people would go to the theater see a movie now they could just stay home and watch it but like you know i went to go see dune 
and I, I was glad I went to go see it, you know, obviously I had my mask on and I was tested and, but you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was really cool to see in the theater, you know, <laughs> I'm glad I did instead of watching it when it was streaming. Obviously with Famous, it comes from a hit theater production. How hard is it to be able to adapt something that is obviously live and it's going to probably be bigger and, and just you're playing to an audience versus obviously television and film where characters and actors have to be played smaller because the, it, the camera's right up on you. How, how difficult is that to adapt that? Uh, I, well, that's hard for me to answer because I wasn't really the uh, uh, adaptor. Is that a word? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was just on, you know, invited for the ride of, of the man who had the adapting pleasure. So um, I, um, you know, uh, I, I, as far as I could see, it, it was a really great, uh, you know, uh, atmosphere. It was very strong and really well connected. And Michael, who's the director, was very connected with the uh, with the actors. So it was like a family, you know, it was like, it was a, definitely a family, and my role of being a, a playing a, a, a movie director, a, a bit as an outsider and uh, concerned about one of the actors, uh, Jason, and, and uh, so I um that helped my character, you know, uh, in, in the storyline, you know. You you've been a part of so many iconic projects that have this unique fandom around them, whether it's Roxbury or Quirky, Undercover Brother. SNL obviously is the greatest example, but I want to flip the script. What is it for you that you have a unique fandom for that you're just that, that people wouldn't know about, whether it's comic books or video games or movies? What are you a fan of? Um, I'm well, I like old movies, you know, I've always been a fan of vintage and nostalgia, and like I love old movie posters and you know, and old photographs and, uh, uh, but I, you know, I was raised, my dad was one of the founders of the Growlings, one of the original members. And, you know, and I, I, uh, I was, you know, I, he raised me on the Marx Brothers and Bob Hope, Bing Crosby and Aubin Costello and Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. I was a huge, huge fan of Buster Keaton. I still am, obviously. I think the man's a genius and, uh, and I've always loved physical comedy because I did a lot of physical comedy and I still do it, which you'll see on Hey Katan as well. And famous, I'm not doing any physical comedy, but <laughs> I'm standing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I grew up watching uh, a lot of Buster Keaton and, uh, you know, Laurel and Hardy and Little Rascals and a lot of that kind of comedy, you know. Uh, I, I love classic stuff and vintage and, you know, uh, that's what I have a love for. To answer your question, and some people like cars, and some people like I don't know sweaters. <laughs> you love Buster Keaton. I like old films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how did those films actually play a role in your direction to decide to become both a comedian and then an actor? Uh, wait, which the what? Say that again. Uh, how did the films that you grew up loving, the the Buster yeah. Keaton, the, the performers that you grew up loving, how did they play a role? in the direction you took with your own career? Uh, well, um, I mean, they in, w by influencing me, you know, and, and, and uh, allowing me to see what I have in myself uh, that I can apply to something creative, 
you know, a character, you know, definitely sketch comedy and doing characters and improvising and, you know, um, that th those, uh, and, uh, you know, I think just comedy, basically, you know, making people laugh, you know, and I, and I found out early on that I could do that, that I could make people laugh in school, you know, and I was the class clown and I was very proud of that. <laughs> I was like, I gotta be, I hope I'm gonna be the, <laughs> whatever, but you know, uh, not that there's politics behind being a class clown, but <laughs> I, it was very important for me to be a class clown. I don't know why. So, um, you know, I got to be class clown at my high school. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because you know, comedy is important. I think it's relevant in, in, in life and for everybody's life, you know. And I I think I found out in my life, I am that's my role in life in a way, you know, is to be someone funny. Uh and uh it's a pleasure to be a person that gets uh, gets the opportunity to make people laugh. You got to be a part of arguably the most iconic institution in New York, Saturday Night Live. For you, when you became a part of that, how how did that change your life? I mean, when you kind of look back on it and you realize you kind of had that I made it moment, I'm part of SNL and truly the glory days of SNL at that time. What was that in terms of as a life changer for you? Um. What was the life changer about that show? Uh, I, I think, um, well, just finding out that, well, getting the opportunity to perform with such amazing actors and uh, performers, you know, it's, it's an iconic, it's the greatest institution around. And as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to comedy, Saturday Night Live is, and, uh, you know, and uh, so getting the opportunity to work with those, that, that mix of people and, and talent is a, is an honor, you know, it's, uh, it's incredible to be, and especially during the, that time, you know, it was an epic time, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, the cast that I was involved with was particularly uh, strong and, and fantastic. Um, so it's an honor to be part of it. You know, the cast now is great. I mean, they always have great casts. I still watch the show and, you know, and I, I think it's, uh, still funny and comedy is really important it's like every it seems like i say every year comedy is really important but every year it gets more and more becomes more and more important as life goes on for everyone i think chris it's been a pleasure congratulations the new movie is famous congrats on the youtube short series thanks for joining man absolutely used to love you growing up so congrats thanks, on everything man. Man. i appreciate that see you brother talk to you, man. same here man take care enjoy okay. enjoy eating now Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> see you, bud. Okay, see ya. All right, folks, that was, of course, Chris Kattan. His new movie is called Famous, and it's really brilliant. It's uh, just a cool adaptation from a theater production. That's always hard to do. Great cast, by the way. So I encourage you all to check it out. Our next guest, a legend from the Bachelor franchise and a, and a guy who's been able to use that franchise to help build a platform and a career post The Bachelor. He's got one of the biggest podcasts on the planet. He's one of the kings of dating advice now and a lifelong enormous Green Bay Packers fan. Next up, Nick Vile.
All right, we got a great day on the Endless Hustle as we're joined now by recurring guest and friend of the show. I can officially say that it's your second time back on the Endless Hustle, Nick Vile. Dude, how about those Green Bay Packers, man? That's the first place to start. Your boy Rogers is lighting up the world right now. Uh, how about them? Yeah, they're um, they're they're doing well. I mean, it's uh, it's been an exciting season. It's I mean, it, it's really the best. It's been a fun season for the Packer fans because. You know, like what is really sports to the average sports fan? It's just, it's just our version of drama. It's, you know, like for all the, like the plating, like, you know, your, your sports fan is like, oh, I don't get reality TV or I don't get soap operas. Like we love the drama. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's why we watch sports. And the Packers have had both on field and off, off field drama. And it's all great, man. And like, uh, yet, you know, usually as a sports fan, we are, we're hesitant of the off-field drama because we're like, if you have off-field drama, you tend to not have on-field success. But the Packers have have kind of bucked that trend, and it's been nothing but off-field drama with you know primarily the Rodgers stuff, and then you have all you know injuries and things like that, and 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 trying to go after OBJ and not getting him, and and yet when it comes to being on the field, the team is like they seem to be really united and, and kind of have an us against them mentality. And it's been really fun to watch. I love that OBJ asked Devante for his Jersey and yeah. Devante slide it. And I'm like, that, that fucker, that's awesome. What a great move. And I'm like, you know what? I'm a lifelong New York giants fan, but I'm actually cheering for the Packers now, like in, in, in kind of the side place of my heart, because I love that. Like, fuck you attitude. Yeah, I mean, uh, Devontae Adams is, does a really good job of he's like a like a polite savage. And I think he understands the importance of doing most of his talking on the field. But he has certainly earned the right to, like, be a little bit of a, a snarky prick when when it calls for it, because he also knows he's always been backing it up on on the field. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all in good fun. I don't uh, I think the Packers are kind of using anything to their advantage in terms of motivation. Like, it sounds like they really tried to get OBJ on the team. They made some calls and, you know, after, after all the dust settled, you know, and there's always a lot of Packer fans, Packer fans are notoriously like ungrateful. Um, I mean, listen, you, you, there's certainly a reasonable criticism for having back to pack hall of fame quarterbacks and only three Super Bowl appearances and two Super Bowl championships to show for it. Like, I don't hold up. My dog is, I don't know where he's getting at. Um, but there, there's certainly reason to be, you know, you to want more. I get that. But like, let's be real here. Like it's you, if you're a Packer fan, it's, it's, it's been a very charmed and blessed uh, reality. And so, um, yeah, I, I just think, um, you know, a lot of fans will, you know, get frustrated at their lack of, you know, success or the championships and, and things like that. But um, I, Jeff kind of, I lost my kind of train of thought with, with what was I, what was I, I'm sorry about that. What, what was I saying? Before? Pretty much talking about how the Packers are dynasty, the football version of dynasty. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's been really fun and we were very, we're very lucky to have him. Oh, that's what I'm saying. The OBJ. So like when we don't get OBJ, like, you know, Packers are the draft and develop draft and develop and like, you know, you haven't won a championship in a while. And there's, you know, a lot of sports writers, you know, like your Adam Silvers of the world will, you know, be first to be like, oh, the Packers don't really go. They don't, they don't ever go all in, you know, like it's such an easy criticism to say, and, and it's kind of arbitrary. 
And, and so like the, I think the OBJ has been like a perfect example of like the all, like, Oh, the Rams are going all in. Like they, 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 they traded a second or third round round for Von Miller and they signed OBJ. It's like, I'm like, if you're a Rams fan right now, uh, Von Miller has played, has been on your roster for three games after you traded a second or third round pick. And done as much as you and I would do. Yeah. He didn't play the first game. And he's been relatively not – I didn't watch him against the Titans when they got blown oh, – the Niners when they got blown up. But, like, I don't know. They got crushed. I don't think he'd really made an impact. I saw – I watched the Packers game. I heard his name called once. Like, I don't know. I, that's not the type of all-in I want to go for. Like, on the, on the flip side, the Packers, like, a very they, – they, they signed uh, Rashul Douglas off a practice squad. Yeah, not sexy. I get it. It's not something that's really going to, like – uh, make you like lose your mind, but that that guy has been literally impacting games, winning games for a team. So it's all so subjective, and I think not getting OBJ, I think um, you know, and having Rashul Douglas uh, do really like uh, like uh, 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 was it Whitney Merciless? Uh, you know, granted he's out for the season, he tore his bicep, but like before he got hurt, he was way more productive in his three games with the Packers, and Von Miller has been with the with the uh, with the Rams and the Packers just signed him after he got cut, so I think there's a lot of different ways to to look at your team and I, you know uh, I'm it's been fun to watch the Packers it's been fun to uh, see them kind of really kind of like everyone everyone of the like all the Packers the coach like Matt Lafleur like he has silenced his critics a lot of the you know when when they sign Matt Lafleur it's like oh you know how is he going to make his relationship work with Rogers? And is like, is he, is he like, is he just riding the wave of like Sean McVay and you know, all this stuff, like the guy's done nothing but win and he's beating the McVay's of the world and things like that. All the criticism that Gutekiss got this summer, you know, certainly that came from Rogers. It seems like Gutekiss has learned a little bit from his mistakes, but like you cannot criticize some of his off season picks over the course of the years. I mean, he has hit some like home runs when it comes to, you know, the Packers were ending into the season, like very salary cap strapped. And he made some really great moves that like you're getting real production from. So like, it's been fun as a Packer fan to see, you know, your, your quarterback, you know, silence his critics on the field, uh, your coach, your GM, and they're in a good spot. So we'll see. Yeah. And by the way, I love how they've handled the whole Roger situation from him pretty much saying he wanted to go do Jeopardy full-time, then pretty much asking for a trade during the draft and dropping bombs on them. I loved it. It was just, again, it was the fuck you attitude. Like, we own you at this point. And meanwhile, dude's being Rodgers again and just absolutely crushing it. I love it. Like, as a Giants fan, it hurts me to be this complimentary of the Packers. But they do their management. It just tells you culture is everything, man. Culture is everything. Yeah, it is. But as a Giants fan, there are, you know, 2011 and 2000. uh, We have two Super Bowls to hang our hats on, right? Specifically over the Packers in years and when the Packers were the number one seed. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, that's that's a weird that's a You know, and and that's that's honestly an interesting uh, debate. Right. Like as a Packer fan, we're in it every year, virtually. Right. Good. But you only have one ring. we got one ring. The Giants are, are almost usually irrelevant unless they're not. And they've won Super Bowls. And like, so who would you rather be? I, you know, um, 
It's I, funny you mention. I had Eli Manning on the show a couple weeks ago, and I was just first of all, I was geeking out over him. I've interviewed everybody on the planet for the last ten years, but I'd never talked to Eli. And I'm like, dude, you brought me so much joy in my life, but there have been so many shitty years. And he started laughing. I'm like, but all the shitty years were kind of put aside for the two beautiful moments that you gave me and all my friends. It was it was a really heartwarming moment. And he knows he knows that those two moments brought so much joy to people like me, even despite all the shitty years. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a fair discussion. It's an interesting debate. I don't think there's a clear answer. Um, I desperately, as a Packer fan, want them to win a Super Bowl because it's been it has been really frustrating um, to go out the way the pa- like Packers have had some really heartbreaking playoff losses. Um, and it's really getting old, you know? And um, so we will, like, and that's the thing, is, as fun as this season has been, none of it really matters, you know? Um, I, 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 I recognize Packer fans can be spoiled and ungrateful, so I choose to very much enjoy the entirety of the season. I enjoy each win. Uh, I try not to live and die by them like I used to when I was younger. Um, but come January, like it's, it's, it's hard for it to not feel like all for not like, what's really the point if we can't like win the big one. And um, I'm, I'm trying not to get too ahead of myself because there's just really something unique about this team. And I think part of it too, like you see it more in, in, in baseball and basketball, like when the bulls and the pistons way back in the day where you have this like really young team, and like they have like three or two or three years, like Jordan was like notorious, for like he couldn't beat the Pistons, right? Couldn't beat the Pistons. And he's like, oh, will he ever win one? And the guy goes on to win the six. And like sometimes a, a, a young team, and this was like before free agent where teams would like would stay together a little bit more. And like a team needed to get that experience, that playoff experience and get over the hump. And it kind of feels like the Packers, you know, like that tough loss to Tampa Bay and the Niners, like it was like some of their playmakers have been other than Rogers have been well relatively young and now they have a bit of a veteran team and some of these young playmakers uh have been you know playing for a while and I'm hoping come this playoff season it will serve them well because I I don't think I I think they just flat out choked against Tampa Bay I don't want to take anything away from Tampa Bay but like they like they turned it over a bunch of times. They had home field advantage. They, they looked out of sync. They, they looked like they were playing tight. They didn't, they, they didn't play their best game and they still only lost, you know, they were still in it to the end. So I'd love to see, a t- you know, the 2014, they just choked against Seattle. I mean, that was the biggest choke job in one of the history of the history of the NFL playoffs. So like the Packers have this, like, they're really good at choking in the playoffs. So hopefully they, they don't this year. To see the joy that you talk about the Packers and sports around, but obviously you've built this uber successful podcast with the Vile Files, but the the basis of that is more about dating relationships and all that great stuff. Do you ever wish you did a sports podcast? Do you ever think like, shit, I should have done the Vile Files sports version? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if eventually I, I tap into my, my sports passion in terms of starting the vile files. And um, it made a lot of sense to lean into that passion. Cause uh, you know, I've always been very passionate about 
social dynamics, relationships, interpersonal relationships, and all of relationships. And with the audience I have, it, it makes a lot of sense. But, um, you know, knock on wood, maybe in the not too uh, near future, I will, uh, I'll be able to express my passions on a more regular basis on a, on a show of my own. Hint, hint, a sports show is coming. That's awesome, dude. <laughs> yeah. So I, the last time I spoke to you, you were single. Now you're in a relationship. I'm like Googling you. Us Weekly is talking about you potentially getting married. What's the relationship world like? Tell us single men what it's actually like. <laughs> you know, if you find the right one, it could be great. Uh, yeah, I saw that Us Weekly article too. Not really sure who's talking. I don't like, it was probably my girlfriend, you know? <laughs> She was probably the source being like, I, you know, maybe, maybe that was her way of planting the seed. I'm just kidding. Uh, don't quote me on that. I don't think she would do that. But um, if, you, if you're lucky enough to find a, a, a great partner, being in a relationship can be really fantastic. Uh, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in, in that position and she's fantastic. And um, yeah, I consider myself to, to be really lucky. And uh, I certainly... Uh, I've spent a lot of years as a single person and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's good to be patient. It's good to wait for the right one, but eventually you kind of, you kind of, like I always said, like a lot of people, and I was as guilty as anyone, right? Like, you know how, like when you're on Netflix and you're just, you're surfing and you, you'd spend like 45 minutes watching. It's insatiable. It's absolutely insatiable. You know? And I think we have approached our dating life like that. We, we do this weird thing, right? Where it's just like, you know, ever since we were like adults, you know, and if we had a, a, a partner, man or woman, you know, you'd be dating someone for like four months and then you would like meet like someone be like, oh, well, you think they're the one? And, and you would say something like, well, you know, I guess like I wouldn't be dating them if I didn't think I could marry them. Right. Which it, that makes a, a ton of sense. What a logical thing to say. And yet, like, we take that so literal. It's like, as we get older, we get like this weirdly more self-aware knowing that like, well, if I all right, I've been dating this person and I, I guess I kind of like them. I don't know much about them, but like, uh, I don't know if I can define the relationship. I don't know if I want to call my girlfriend. Cause like, I don't know, in two months, like aunt Betty's going to ask me if I think they're the one. And I'm going to say something like, well, I guess I wouldn't like date them if I didn't think they were the one. And I don't know if I can say that about this person, which is like, we're just kind of like ass backwards when we do that shit. And it's the equivalent of like, we're on Netflix and we're trying to watch, find the perfect preview. It's just like, like we have to like, we're going to, we're watching all these previews available to us because like once we press play, like we got to watch this whole thing and we have to watch it for the rest of our life. Well, like dude, you, you play and it's like, and watching the show. And so, yeah. You're also in bachelor fame is like a whole different level of fame. It's so crazy to me. Like I've interviewed movie stars for the last decade, but if I put up a picture with anybody from bachelor nation, it is like more likes, more attention, and it's such a, like, I was at, I live in the West Village in New York, and I was at the Spaniard and Pilot Pete walked in. I don't even, like, really watch A Bachelor. All of a sudden, like, a gang of girls approach. I'm like, who is that guy? And they're like, Pilot Pete. And I'm like, oh, I've heard that just from being in the business. But it was like Brad Pitt had walked in. And I thought to myself, once you're part of Bachelor Nation or you're the Bachelor, it's got to be almost fucking impossible to actually settle down because... It's like a fame that just carries on and on and on because the fan base is so rabid for that show. I think to a certain degree that that uh, that could be a fair criticism, especially if if you're relatively recent, like Pete was a bachelor not too long ago. 
and, and Pete's a relatively young guy. And yeah, I do think if you go on the show and um, that that is something you should be uh, aware of. Hold on one second, Jeff, stop. Uh, just eating a foot picture. Uh, that is something you need to be aware of as uh, of someone who like shouldn't, you know, to try not to get too caught up in it. Because I also think a lot of that stuff, like it's fun, it's exciting, it can get a little old. Um, and it just uh, depends on the level of kind of self-awareness that you have and, and, you know, kind of like setting up your priorities. Like, what am I looking for? You know, like if I, you know, and so it, it can vary, but I definitely think that is, uh, you know, one of those things that can be exciting, but also can turn into a negative if you don't learn how to kind of manage that kind of surreal situation. Did you have withdrawal the further you got away from it? And the attention becomes less and less. And obviously you've done great things since and you have this podcast and obviously hopefully the sports show and other stuff. But was there withdrawal when the fame kind of starts to dissipate the further you get away from it? Um, you know, I think I've been fortunate enough to not um, to like stay busy enough. And like with the vile files, it's great to like, you know, especially when I come to a place like New York, where just, you know, and also like to your point, like New York is a, is a very strong in bachelor nation. Like there's certain pockets of the country and New York is a hotbed, but um, you know, it, it's, it feels really good to go, you know, when I get to New York to get stopped and you know, you're thinking, oh, they're gonna ask me about the bachelor. And it's like, oh, I love your podcast. And that, that feels very rewarding. And I guess I've been fortunate enough that like, it certainly has died down. You know, like I don't walk into bars anymore um and certainly like i might get the occasional person who comes up but like it you know like the situation you described with pilot pete you know coming off the show you can literally feel the energy of the room shift in your direction and that's a very surreal feeling <clears throat> i guess i was like for me i i was really self-conscious of of not letting that get to me and i just remember being really self-conscious of 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 not losing myself uh, with those situations, because I, I, I just knew I, maybe I was in, I went into an, as an older age, I knew this, this, this wasn't sustainable. Like, you know, unless I like booked a movie or a TV show or see or like, I, I'm not going on the show anymore. So I just knew like, this is going to die down. And, and, um, I, I, I think just always thinking about that helped me not experience that because I do think uh, it can be a drug that people chase and, because it is, it's like that, what you described, uh, it's, it's like a hit. I, I don't know what it's like to do like hard drugs or anything, but the way they describe it, it's like that kind of hit of like dopamine or whatever, whatever release that your body is releasing when you, when you like hit that drug, like that reaction is an incredible feeling. And it's something you do want to replicate, you know? So it's, um, you uh it just it requires a lot of self-discipline and um I, I am thankful i've had the right people around me to keep me level enough that i i i never like crashed so to speak you know when you came off the show i was talking to tyler cameron about this actually tyler's done a fantastic job of staying relevant since the show too he's all over the place doing content for everybody from barstool to overtime to his own stuff and tv show it's really great to see only a few of you guys have really been able to really maximize the opportunity and turn it into careers afterwards. And then, like you said, most people just kind of return back into their normal lives and their normal careers. 
But when you first came off the show, were people like, oh, Nick, you've got to be in movies. You've got to be on TV shows. Were like the agents and everybody coming at you from every direction? Well, it's usually it starts with like your your family and like cousins and aunts and uncles that you you didn't like hear from that much. Or like I remember I used to work for Salesforce when I got back. Cause I like, you know, the first time I went on, I was like, I'm just going to go back to work. And it was a different time than with social media. Like the playbook wasn't as like obvious. And like, you know, if you're from the Midwest, it would always be like, Oh, you're doing the Hollywood thing, you know, whatever, whatever that, whatever that means. Um, so I think some of those kind of crazy expectations come from people who don't know better, you know, like, I come from a place where being a, you know, witness number three in the five o'clock news was like a big deal. So um, being on ABC, you know, uh, every Monday night for a period of time is like, you know, mind blowing. Uh, but, um, you know, like out in Hollywood, I mean, you get humbled pretty quickly. You know, I'm a big, you know, uh, I recognize pretty early and it's advice I give to I probably advice I gave to Tyler at some point. Um, but for every person who goes on the show, if, if, if there's one bit of advice uh, I would give them, if they ask, it's you need to know the difference between access and credibility because this show gives you incredible access, <clears throat> but you actually lose a lot of your credibility. And if you know the difference, you can use your access to build your credibility in spaces that you want to build it, right? You just have to walk in and be willing to learn and ask for advice and, and ask how you can do the work, not, not assume that you are entitled to any one thing, uh, but leverage your access into rooms that you wouldn't normally get into because honestly, they just want to meet you because they're fans of the show. But just because they're fans of the show does not mean they're willing to put their job on the line as like, say, a casting agent or a casting director. Like they'd be in the fan of the show, but they're not going to be like, hey, guess who I booked? You know, yeah, they're like, you're not starring in Spielberg's next movie. Sorry, yeah. buddy. You know, and so um, it's just really important to know the difference. And uh, that is something that has served me well, um, because this show does give you incredible access. It does give you an incredible platform. And how we choose to use it can really dictate, um, you know, the level of success we have after the show. I forgot to mention in our last conversation, I actually work with the NHL. And as a kid from Wisconsin, how did you not get into hockey? I've not seen anything with you in hockey. Uh, hockey is not as big in Wisconsin. It's, it's big in Michigan. It's big in, in Minnesota. At least I'm from southern Wisconsin. It's also like where I'm from. It's like a rich man's game. Like, and I grew up very, I mean, not poor, but blue collar. I'm like one of 11 kids. Uh, and my parents just couldn't afford the ring time or the, the like, um, um, the equipment. But I, I, I was awesome at roller hockey. And I honestly regret, like, I, I think to myself, because I was pretty athletic, I would have loved to, like, grown up in a community where hockey was the main sport. Because, like, I think I could have been, I was fast. I was really fast. I mean, I... I dominated the, uh, uh, the, the roller hockey game with my friends. Well, not that that means anything, but. Have you ever gotten to get out there with any NHL players, semi-professional, gotten to see if you would have been any good? Not really, no. I, uh, you know, we know it's on my bucket list because, like, I, I'm, like, strangely good at roller skating. Like, I, I've been roller skating since I was a kid, like, four wheels, like, you know, the, the, the square, you know, not, not in line, but, like, 
And, um, and I never ice skated till I was like in the seventh grade. So like, I'm because I know how to roller skate and rollerblade, like I can slap on hockey skates and like be totally competent. Right. But like, I've never, I don't know how to hockey stop. I've never hockey stopped. And as far as like bucket list things, and I, I want to, I've always wanted to know how to hockey stop. And uh, I, I've just never taken the time, but um, I would love, I would love to. That would be such a fun segment, man. It'd be funny to like see an NHL player teach you how to actually hockey stop because people don't realize how hard that shit is. Oh yeah. I mean, it's so cool. Um, and if I could learn how to do that. Yeah. But cause I can move, I can move on skates. Um, but yeah, anyways. Yeah. In, in a different life, I, I would have played hockey for sure. NHL hockey 95 and super Nintendo. I crushed Dude, best game. NHL hockey was the best. Like that was the greatest stuff ever, man. It was like a drug. Oh, so good at the, you know, uh, yeah, I could. Uh, the, the Chicago Blackhawks with Jeremy Roenick. One of the other things that I've actually been really impressed by you is you're really great on social media. Like I'm 43, man. So doing TikTok, like I don't do TikTok, and it's probably a huge weakness because the show's actually done really well. But we're, I'm just so bad with that stuff. You've actually like been really good with the playbook of social media, but how hard it is, uh, how hard is it at your age to still keep up with all this? It's hard, man. Like, I don't, yeah, it's, I, I don't, I, it's a combination of like, you know, I try to do things on my own, but I also like, I just invested, right? Like I hire, I, I have two assistants who, especially when it comes to the vile files and the podcast, like they take our podcast content and turn it into like TikToks and things we use on social media because I, I just can't keep up and I could always do better. And um, yeah, I, I, as I get older, I, I, I hate, I hate, I've always hated the phrase, well, we've always done it this way. Um, and, you know, I, you know, and I grew up growing in the Midwest, there's definitely like this kind of mindset of, you know, you go to school, you go to college, you get married, get married have six kids. The, the usual. By the time you're 30, like, that's it. It's just, you coast. And not everyone, but there's a general mindset of that mentality. And I, I just don't, I just don't subscribe to that. And I want to keep myself sharp. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to like act like a kid, but there's a lot to learn from the youth. I don't want to become the outdated old white guy, you know, who's like not in touch just because like, well, in my, in my day, it's just like adapt, you know? Um, and so I like that mindset, I think helps me, you know, try to continue to use the tools that are available to me. Like if I'm going to have a public profile, if I'm going to have a platform, if I'm going to create a show, uh, I've been given this platform and I want to try to use it. And, you know, I, I, I tell you what, man, I, right before the pandemic hit, I went to this party. It was like, it was like, we were talking about the pandemic, but we hadn't like, you know, like the world didn't shut down yet. We didn't know yet. Right. We didn't know and, yet. And I was talking to a buddy who's like an entrepreneur and he was just like, fucking TikTok, dude, I'm telling you, TikTok get on it, start doing it, blah, blah, you grow it. And I was like, oh man, I don't, fuck, another one? Fuck, really? Like, I don't, nah. And, and I took his advice and at least started a TikTok and I played around with it. And then the quarantine happened and I just like, didn't commit to it, right? Like I did it for a while and I got some early returns and I just, I just didn't commit to it. And it, like eight months later, 
I finally like hired two assistants and I was like, I went, I, I, I basically, I was in quarantine for a show and I, at the, up until this point, I wasn't using TikTok at all. Like, cause when I first started using TikTok, I, I was just, I was using it as a creator. I would be like, all right, well, I should make some TikToks and like, right, right. but I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't using TikTok as a consumer. And I was in quarantine. I kept hearing about TikTok. And then there was a part of me that kind of that old guy mentality of like, oh, I, whatever. It's like, it's not for me. It's not for me. I'm like, it's for the kids, what the kids are using. You know, you always see people on TikTok like, oh, am I too old for this app? You know, like shit like that. Like, don't stop, stop doing that to yourself. Right. But anyways, I, there was a way I was kind of, I had that mentality. And and I, I was like, I was in a hotel room with nothing to do. So I was tired. I didn't want to, so I was like, I'm going on TikTok. And I'll tell you what, man, <clears throat> I left that quarantine and I went to my assistants. I said, stop what we're doing. And the only thing we're focusing on for the foreseeable future is TikToks. And, you know, we've grown our TikTok account <clears throat> a half a million, but I missed the window, man. Like the eight months when that, when that, my buddy of mine told me that if I would have did what I started doing then, you could have been Addison Ray. I mean, I, don't, I, I would have a significantly larger following because there was definitely a window. Like I missed an opportunity and I certainly got in it relatively early. It's still like, you know, like there are people still signing up for Instagram now, right? But like, so it's still relatively in its infancy TikTok. No, but you're, you're right, dude. If you catch, it's like getting crypto or Bitcoin. If you can catch it right at the bottom, you can literally become whatever in yep. your industry it's incredible and look at again addison ray and the, and the other the d'amelios and sure. like i had the d'amelio parents on and it's like people are making hand over fist now and it's incredible because they caught it early so whatever it is like whether it's social media like i had a college professor who like did a whole class on like investing in yourself that might mean buying a nice suit for interviews or you know take you know i don't know, getting therapy because you're like i don't know, i feel fucked up you know like you know, I think we have to, you know, what we spend our money on, um, is it going to add value to our life? Is it, you know, is it going to be an investment to ourselves? And I, I, I hired, I have two, you know, I basically have one full-time person I'm paying a full salary to because I have two part-time people to like just focus on social media and it's completely worth it, you know, because like that's where, everyone that's where people are consuming content you know like that's you have so like it's it does it, it's a no-brainer to me and i wish i would have realized that sooner and so like i just i constantly force myself to continue to try to like how how am i investing in myself you know like essentially instead of like you know and i have i have a little bit of crypto but um i i hired people with the mindset of this is an investment that I'm like, whether it's crypto or the stock market, I am, I'm putting this investment there because I think there can be an ROI. And um, yeah, it's just a mindset and, and trying to stay focused. And, you know, the Gary V's of the world inspired me, you know, like here's that kind of old guy, but like it is, it's, um, you just got to stay on it. You got to stay, stay with it. I was in a room with Gary V where he goes 45. It's still a young time to start your start your own business. And he was talking to some young entrepreneur. Was like, I feel old. He's like, Bro, you're 45. It's just beginning. And as a 43 year old, you just sit there and you're like, All right, I'm ready to run through walls now. Yeah. If you want to start, if 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 you ever feel old, whatever age you are. Well, first of all, like and I've said this a hundred times. I might have even said in the past when I was with you. Today is the oldest we've ever been, man. 
So like we both feel old and we had that same feeling when we were 20 because yep. when we were 20, we're like, fuck, I'm 20. Like, holy shit. You know? Cause like when you were 12, 20 seemed old. So if you ever feel old, go hang out with people twice your age, go to like, you know, you know, until you're like 70 or 80 and it's harder to find people twice your age. Like, I mean, you talk to those people and the seven-year-old is like, oh man, I, mean, I was 50, I was 50 again. I would do so like, you know, that that's the thing. There are 70 year olds out there just wishing they were 50. They're not wishing they were 20. Yep. You know? And so I try to remember that when every time I, I'm, I'm uh, judging myself about, you know, if I'm getting older or what should I be doing this? Like, uh, you know, if all the kids are on TikTok, it's like, fuck man. If the kids are on TikTok, that's like, I don't, you know, something as a podcast creator, like I want to be here for the long haul. So like, I want to make sure that my audience isn't getting older with me. Yep. You know? uh, I, I hope my audience always stays with me, but I want to continue to like bring on new people because, you know, whoever's 20 now is going to be 26, you know, in six years. And the things I'm talking about now that maybe might be more relatable to a 25 year old, a 26 year old. Well, I'd rather have them get on board now. And so, you know, it's never, it's never too early to plan for the future but we always have to like stay, you know, present enough to like enjoy where we are and, and stop calling ourselves old. You know, like it's like 20 year olds call themselves old, you know? <laughs> I love it, dude. Perspective, you know? That's a perfect place to end, man, bro. Congratulations on the Vile Files. Continued success with everything. Always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, I can't wait to see this potentially new program you got on the way, man. I'm really excited. I think you do a great job with sports conversations. So it'll be exciting. uh, If it happens, I'll have to have have you come on. Appreciate it, man. Always great having you on, Nick. You as well, Arthur. Thanks a lot. Thanks, brother. Bye-bye. See you, Ben. All right, folks, that was Nick Vile. Make sure to check out the Vile Files wherever you listen to podcasts. We're finishing up this great episode with Major League Baseball pitcher and full-time financial advisor. That's such a weird sentence to say, but hey, Ross Stripling does it all. And his nickname is Chicken Strip, and he tells me about that story too. Really cool stuff from Ross Stripling. I think you guys are going to love this interview. Here he is, Ross Stripling. All right, we got a fun day on The Endless Hustle as I'm joined by pitcher and financial advisor extraordinaire, Ross Stripling. Ross, some disclosure. I was actually a financial advisor for a decade. Nice. I didn't know that. Okay, so uh, recently or back in the day or or when was Uh, that? Well, I'm 43, so everything now technically is back in the day. But from 21 to 30, I was a financial advisor in Conshohocken, in Pennsylvania. had a very successful practice. And then at 30 years old, sold it to go pursue my dream, which is talking to people like you. And that was 13 years ago, man. So yeah, I know the business really, really well. And it actually is like crazy to me to think you're essentially a full-time pitcher, but also got your series seven and all your licenses. How did that happen? Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, You know, I'll give you the the spark notes version as best I can. Um, I was drafted and was, you know, working up the minor league ladder and I had a Tommy John surgery, which is a lot like a football player getting an ACL injury. You know, you're facing a year plus of rehab before you're back pitching in a game. And I had a college degree and, and I had a finance degree from Texas A&M and I was, you know, kind of ready to, I don't know, implement that in my life somewhere. 
And I got in with, at the time, Wonderlick Securities, who my grandfather invested with for 40 years here in Houston, and just kind of shadowed a guy in an off season and, um, you know, really came to, to like the business and enjoy it and enjoy the conversations with people and, and understand that side of the financial world. And they agreed to sponsor me, get me licensed. So I took the series seven in one off season, the 66, the next off season, and all of a sudden I'm licensed and soliciting advice to clients. And that's like my mantra around baseball, you know, Vince Scully, the legendary uh, announcer for the Dodgers, every time I'd pitch, be like, Ross Stripling, the financial advisor, you know, heaves the ball for a strike or whatever. Like, it's just, it, it blew up and, and I enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously, um, you know, hopefully a life after baseball thing, even though I'm very active in it now, uh, you know, baseball is definitely what I'm laser focused on with the finance stuff kind of there as well. All right. So the million dollar question is, what'd you score on the seven? Oh, good question. I hammered the seven, man. I, I got like a 93 on the seven, but I, I, I overprepared for that one. I just like practice test after practice test. The 66, though, barely passed. I got like a. Oh, a, that one's brutal. The 66 is yeah. way harder than the yeah. seven. Written by lawyers. They give you like the Roman numerals, like which one is not correct. And it's like Roman numeral one and two, one, two, and four. And you're like, gosh, I'm, whatever. <laughs> so, how do you juggle the two? If you have clients or you're advising people, obviously being a baseball thing, a baseball thing. Being a yeah. baseball pitcher is a full-time job. If you're on the road, if you're pitching, obviously every five days, like how are you able to juggle clients? Sure. I mean, you know, what's great is, is you were in the business for a long time, right? So you kind of understand that even though this seems like I should get up and, and be texting everyone, like what's the market doing today? Here's my synopsis. Here's what this stock is doing. It's not really that, right? I mean, it's, it's very much kind of like on a quarterly basis, you have earnings and you're kind of keeping people up to date, um, you know, very macro things that you're probably texting out every now and then, but I'm not, you know, like waking up with the market every morning and since, you know, calling clients and stuff like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a gig, it's a business or it's a job. And, and I'm certainly keeping them up to date, but there's plenty of time and days where you're not talking to clients, you know, and hopefully if you're doing the job, well, they're not reaching out to you because, you know, you got them in, in stuff that they should be in and, and they're feeling good about where they're at. So, you know, long-winded way to say that, um, you know, I also don't have anyone's nest egg. I'm not investing, um, you know, anyone's, you know, what they need to retire right now that, you know, I'm kind of playing, I'm a stock picker by trade, man. A lot of money that I have is, um, you know, some play money that guys want to invest. They want to stock pick. They want to be aggressive with. That's kind of what I've done with my portfolio and, and, and what I've chosen to get clients that are, that are wanting to do that as well. So I'm not really, uh, you know, I'm not buying ETFs. I'm not buying funds. I'm not buying stuff that, um, you know, people are, are going to retire on necessarily, if that makes sense. I, I'm more kind of being aggressive, picking things that I think that, uh, you know, not shoot the moon as we hear from those dudes at, uh, what was it, FinTwit and, uh, uh, oh man, what are the GameStop guys and, and AMC oh guys? My, oh my God, I'm having a brain fart. Yeah, same. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm doing. I'm in the middle, you know, I'm in the middle there. Um, but I can do everything, but I, I choose to be a stock picker by trade. Well, you also have the greatest natural market imaginable because you, I would literally, I'm guessing you are pitching pretty much everybody on the Blue Jays or any team you end up like literally be like, Hey guys, 1% rap fee right here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it right now is about networking for sure. And I think everyone knows that if baseball ended today, they're probably getting a text from me in the next month saying like, Hey man, you know, what's your financial situation? You ready to come join the uh, chicken strip balance fund or, or whatever, it, you know? And, uh, Right now, I'm not necessarily actively trying to get teammates and to manage their money. I think I'm trying to keep them separate as best I can, but I, I 
definitely know that everyone's aware that that I'm going to hit them up at some point. You mentioned the chicken strip, and obviously anybody who goes to your Twitter will see the pinned tweet, which is you played with chicken strip on the back of your jersey. Yeah. Tell me the whole origin of this chicken strip thing. Sure. So I didn't I didn't go by chicken strip as a kid. Like, you know, my high school football coaches didn't call me chicken strip. I've always just been strip stripper or whatever, you know. And that tweet comes from the first year that the MLB did the players weekend where we got to put nicknames on our back. So we had to submit what we wanted ours to be because some of them might be trademarked. You know, if you wanted to be like Captain America or whatever, you can't do that because it's trademarked. So I sent in stripper which they said, no, that's too rated R. So then I said, okay, well, let's just do strip. Everyone calls me strip. Same thing. They said that's too uh, provocative or whatever. I was like, man, I mean, that, those are my nicknames. And uh, at the time I had a teammate that just said, dude, just do chicken strip. And I was like, that's so cheesy. And they're like, that's what the weekend's about. So I did chicken strip and man, it caught on like wildfire. I mean, more people, fans will chirp at me chicken strip than my real name I mean it that caught on and I love it now it's been you know five years that I, I get that nickname but it's uh yeah the origin is is really a joke and and kind of wasn't even supposed to be and now that's what I am chicken strip I mean I remember when you did it and literally like sports center was covering it and it yeah. was like this like monster national story and I'm like this is fucking great yeah. <laughs> the great marketing yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I think that was a great thing for baseball. And I think we were able to show some personality, you know, some something that baseball really needs more of. And uh, we didn't do it this year and I never even heard why. So, um, you know, I hope we bring it back and it's, you know, it's a fun weekend for us and for fans. I want to talk to you about branding because that's essentially what you're touching on now. And you're right. Baseball has probably done one of the poor jobs, even though it's your sport. But when you look at, for instance, the NBA or the NFL, those guys understand marketing and branding to, the upper echelon of knowing how to do it where baseball there and the NHL is another example where there feels like a regression where it's more regarded as kind of the traditionalism versus like being individual. How much in baseball right now do you see with players who are really trying to brand themselves and how much of an initiative is it? It's a huge initiative. I mean, it, it's, you know, really in the last two, three years where you've seen the NBA really explode and become a real part of our culture, you know, and, and players, the sixth person on the Lakers probably has millions of followers on Instagram. When I think that we might have four players in the MLB with a million followers, you know, we're just not as part of culture as it seems that the NFL and the NBA are right now for a variety of reasons. Now, uh, you, you, we have such an exciting young crop of players, man, like Acuna and Soto and Tatis and, Corey Seager, Mookie Betts, the list goes Vladdy. on and on. Yeah, exactly. Vladdy, <laughs> you know, guys on my team, Vladdy, Bo, and um, Kevin Biggio, just like with their, you know, fathers now passing down to them and how good they are. Like, I mean, there's so many awesome stories in the MLB, and the young players are doing a good job of branding themselves. I feel like we have gotten better. But, you know, my theory is, man, we just play too many games for, for guys that really had the time to go be in commercials or to do whatever. I mean, it's, it's really hard to wake up and go be in a BMW commercial and then play nine innings that night and then get up and do it again the next day. It's also kind of a bad look if I get up and I go somewhere and I, or I tweet something and that night I go over four with four punch outs. Like there's, there's a lot of guys that don't want to um, kind of take that risk, you know, versus the NBA, there's more off days. The NFL gets a whole week between games. So we're kind of have these three, four months of an off season where we feel like we can really focus on that kind of stuff versus 162 games where you're just so laser, laser focused on staying on the field. So Vladdy, that's what, I mean, this guy, I, I was trying to think about 
phenomenons in baseball, like a player who just has been this good this early. I can't remember anyone who has legitimately been like, he's like the Zion Williamson of like baseball right now. Like the dude is like a, just a physical and mental and productive phenomenon. Have you ever seen anything like him? Well, my favorite kid, or sorry, my favorite player as a kid was King Griffey Jr., but a much different player than Vladdy, right? I mean, he, he, he was so young, he got to play with his dad for like two years in the big leagues, right? Like King Griffey, that's, that's you know, think about Vladdy kind of had that opportunity with his dad. Griffey actually did that, but a much different player. Griffey, very tall, sleek, athletic. Vladdy is like just power, like can barely fit through a doorway. He's just so big, right? I mean, he's just a giant 22-year-old kid, and that's the way he plays too. I mean, that the guys I mentioned earlier, the Tatisis and the Sotos, Acuna and Vladdy kind of pair those four together. They always play with big smiles on their faces. They play with a lot of energy. They're really good for the game of baseball. And I got a front row seat to Vladdy for 162 games and, and just watch him go ham, man. And we had a crazy year. We moved three times. We played in Dunedin, Florida. We played in Buffalo. We played, then we finally got to go to Toronto. And all Vladdy did was produce everywhere we went um and did it with a smile on his face man it's it's he's gonna be a pleasure to watch for a long time and you know I hope I'm a Blue Jay for more years to come because I, I like uh I like my seat in the dugout getting to watch him do it so how do you like Toronto first of all I always tell people I live in New York but Toronto is probably the closest thing to New York that we have I feel like in North America it has such a cool New York feel but how do you like Toronto as an as, as a kid from America I loved it, man. I loved every minute of it. You know, I was, I was stressed getting there because I kind of knew that my family probably wasn't going to come. And, you know, so those last two plus months, my family was here in Texas and I was up in Toronto. So that weighed on me a little bit. And, um, you know, but just the city lived up to the hype, man. Like you said, I actually compared to Chicago a little bit more than New York. I don't, I don't know. I think I'm more familiar with Chicago being one, but like it's off the great lakes. The, the buildings kind of look the same. It's easy to navigate. You know, New York, I'm always just, man, I feel like I'm, I'm lost, but I do love the hustle and bustle of New York. Um, and then the people lived up to the hype, man. The, the Canadian people were so friendly. Um, I got recognized more walking the streets of Toronto than I ever did in L.A. Um, just people coming up and shaking my hand, taking a picture, saying, man, good luck. You know, we're rooting for you guys. I thought that was great. You could tell that they were really happy to have us back in the country. And then uh, once we opened up the stadium those last couple of weeks and made a playoff run, man, that was, that was some of the most fun baseball I've ever been a part of. And I've been very lucky. I've been a part of two world series and played in LA where, you know, baseball is awesome. And then Toronto lived up to that every bit. And then some. So you, when you got your world series ring, were you surprised when I say surprised, surprised at the size of it, the weight of it, was it kind of what you expected? What was your reaction when you first saw your world series ring? It was a little bit of what I expected, right? Because I was late to the party. I got to see the my former teammates like, uh, you know, Clayton and Kike, them get the ring. I hadn't seen one in person, but I'd seen plenty of pictures on Instagram and all that stuff. And you could just tell like, dude, that thing is a behemoth, right? And uh, so Oral Hershiser, they won the 88 World Series and he wears his ring all the time. And that thing is, is wearable. You know, it's, it's about the size of my Texas A&M ring, like just a little bit bigger, but, you know, classy, really good look, but can tell like that came from something special. This thing you can't wear. I mean, this thing is is just gargantuan. I mean, you could wear it to like a gala or something, but there's no way I could just like walk down the street with this thing on. I mean, it's like as big as my fist. And uh, but it's incredible. I mean, it's got the trophy on one side, some palm trees. Uh, they engraved it on the inside with like the series, um, you know, who we played and who they beat, and um, you know, all this stuff. Like the detail, they didn't they didn't spare any. So it it, it was incredibly done. But you know, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get that thing out and wear it. 
I know I would literally be scared to do anything with that. I would be the guy that somehow like clips it on some sharp edge and just fucks it up. That would be, the, yeah. I, I'm that guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This thing might break whatever you'd clip it on. It's uh, it's pretty sturdy. So I had Ian Happ on the show not too long ago and we're, he's obviously a partner in John Boy Media, which is obvious, just exploded. Like the post just did a huge article on what those guys are doing over there. But he has his podcast. I know you had started your own podcast. When you start having to actually talk for a living, obviously you didn't depend on it for the income because you're, again, a baseball player. But how weird was it to have to actually like host the podcast? What were some of the learnings? What did you realize you're good at, not so great at? And being on the other side of an interview is, is stressful. And, and, you know, I'm used to being asked the questions, right? Where I'm just kind of reacting like we are right now, right? You ask me something and I answer and we move on or we stay on a topic for a while or whatever. You know, you're the driver of the conversation when you're on the other side. And what I found was I would structure these episodes, right? Like our first couple, let's say, um, like we were lucky to have Kirk Herbstreet on the podcast. And I was just like laser focused on what I wanted to talk about. And Herbie's amazing. He was ready to go down these other tangents. And I would kind of like bring him back to what I had planned. And a lot of times I'm not even listening to what he's saying because yep. I'm preparing for my next question. And you realize that, man, it's just better when I can sit back and have a conversation. For one, I'm going to have more fun and I'm doing this for fun. And I know if I'm having fun, the listeners are going to find it more enjoyable. So once I was able to kind of break free from my type A you know, structure that I was bringing to these episodes and just kick back and enjoy a conversation with a friend or colleague or whoever was on that day, I feel like our podcast really, you know, it, it did much better. And I was, I was less stressed about it and all that. So that was the biggest change is just being on the opposite end of the interview and having to steer that conversation and actually ask the questions rather than just reacting like normal. It is such an organic process. I'll have people like, who are like, Oh, how hard is it? I'm like, go try to talk to somebody for half an hour, 20 yeah. minutes or 25 minutes and drive the conversation, especially when you said it perfectly. It's a read and react thing, right? Yeah. So I never write down, my, I've been doing this for over a decade. I never write down my questions. Obviously you have certain topics, you know, you want to hit, but ultimately it's like read and react. Like, and people, I'm like, go try it, go give it a shot. I've had people who are like, shit, after three minutes, I was like, fuck, what do I say now? It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is the different personalities you get, right? So you interview people all the time. Like some people like myself are long-winded, man. I'm easy. Like we're just going to talk. And then you have some people that just, you know, you'd be like, man, what's it like playing for coach so-and-so? And be like, oh, it's great. And you're like, oh, okay, well, let's move on or whatever. You know, like you're just dealing with people that, that vibe differently and it, it can be difficult. Well, the worst is, and athletes are brutal, as you know, because you're representing a multi-billion dollar franchise. So you fucking say something off kilter, you're cut, you're whatever, waved, you're like not re-signed, you've destroyed the brand of a multi. I mean, yep. there's so many scenarios. So, and I know you guys have to go through media training and all that great stuff, but it literally, it's like, don't say anything dumb is probably rule number one, where at the end of the day, your personality, you're like a dude. Like if you're at a bar with your boys, you're going to dissect the Aaron Rodgers COVID fiasco. You're going to yep. dissect whatever. And there's those two sides of the coin. So having a podcast, and I talked to Ian about this, you get to actually show that end of your personality. And it's got to be just so refreshing for you guys. Well, it comes back to kind of what we talked on earlier is the branding too. There aren't a lot of baseball podcasts right out there. I, I feel like I can name five to 10 NBA players that are either part of or have their own podcasts. And it's 
it's a way for us to show our personalities and to kind of show what we're interested in. And I was able to have on a lot of players from around the league that, um, you know, like a Jack Flaherty, who I think is one of the best young pitchers we have in baseball. He pitches for the Cardinals. And I feel like nobody knows anything about him. And I was able to have him on and we talked for 45 minutes and he talked about his love of Kobe Bryant right after Kobe Bryant died and like all this stuff that I didn't know. And I know no one else knew. So I feel like it's also kind of a step in the right direction towards just getting our personalities out there as baseball players. I wish a player on every team had a podcast that way you could just get to know that team and their players and their fans would love it. And, you know, hopefully we're heading in that way. Maybe I was a small stepping stone to that. I know Ian started his podcast like right after we had him on. So I've always said that I had a little bit of, of uh, oomph in getting him there, but uh, who knows if that's true or not. But, you know, I, I'd like to think that I at least helped push the game forward, even if it's just a millimeter. So do you think about life after baseball? Now, obviously you do because with the financial advisor stuff and the podcast, but how deep are you into that thought at this point? Are you kind of like, uh, do you have a timeline in your head? You don't have to say what it is, but have you kind of already planned out the next three, five, 10 years of your life and what it's going to look like? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I'll be going into this season at 32 years old, um, you know, which in baseball life is, is fairly old. It really is. So, you know, obviously you start to think about that. Um, I got an eight month old son, you know, coming up on four years of marriage, you're always thinking about your family and, and putting them in the best opportunities possible moving forward. And, and how am I going to take care of them for those next years and for the rest of our life? You know, you really want to, to crunch down on this time where you have a chance to make, you know, a lot of money and, and chance to take care of your family for the rest of our lives. So certainly thinking about that, um, as far as life after baseball, the finance stuff is hundred percent, which will be priority one, like baseball ends. Even if I were to get an opportunity to be a coach or a GM or something like that, I love the finance side of stuff. I love getting to interact with people and, and, and have a chance to take care of their lives and, and their lives moving forward. And, and I've really come to enjoy that. So that will definitely be where I start my post-baseball career. Um, obviously, I hope it's more like seven years down the road than two, but um, you know, certainly start to think about that, get those things in order and, and, and be ready for when that day comes. I want to talk to you about Tommy John because this is one of those things where I remember again being 43, 20 years ago, you got Tommy John, you're done, right? Like it's like, fuck, you're done. It's over. Now yeah. Tommy John is like almost recommended. As soon as you have like a little ting in your like elbow, it's like, let get him Tommy John. Do you come back from something like that because of the modern medicine? Are you 100% when you come back from Tommy John? Everyone's different, right? I mean, in, in my time as a baseball player, I've probably seen, gosh, hundreds of kids, you know, men get Tommy John surgery. And I feel like I can only name one that didn't come back, you know, for whatever reason. And, um, you know, here guys having a second one, but even the success on a second one, Jameson Italian, one of my good friends from here in Houston, he had his second one, just had a great year with the Yankees. So you can even overcome a second one. Um, you know, what it is, is yeah, like modern medicine, man, you, the, you know, they go in there, they take that ligament out and they replace it with one that's newer and stronger. And you trust it because you know, the success rate of that surgery is so high. You're not coming back timid. Like maybe a football player is the first couple of times he cuts on his knee, probably going to be a little bit timid. Yeah. There's some of that when you come back throwing, you're letting it eat for the first time. But once you get that trust back, you're not even thinking about your elbow, man. Most of us, you're really not. You just trust that that thing's healthy. I'm done. I got that year of rehab behind me, that surgery. So many people get it. I'm good to go. And that's been my experience with it, man. Like knock on wood, have had no issues with my elbow since I had that surgery in 2014. So it's, it's not even a, a worry in my life. I, I just trust that my elbow is stronger than it's ever been. When was the moment you knew you were going to get it to the majors? Like, was there a moment that you can literally pinpoint where you threw a pitch and you're just like, I'm a major league pitcher. This is going to happen for me. 
No, there's not. Um, I wish that there was, but I kind of like that my story is different, man. Um, I got drafted in the ninth round as a junior out of college and didn't even see it coming. You know, all my friends around me are getting drafted and going to sign and all this stuff. And I remember I got drafted by the Rockies and he came to my family's house and he was like, we're going to send you to rookie ball. We see you moving quickly. And I was like, whoa, 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 man. Like I'm going back to school. Like it wasn't even in my mind to sign there when I think I was the only ninth rounder that didn't sign. Like everyone went and played baseball besides me. I went back to school and got my degree and played another year as an Aggie. I'm a third generation Aggie. I love Texas A&M. Like it was always going to be, I'm going back to school. I get drafted in the fifth round by the Dodgers. And I'm still like, got my degree kind of thinking I might go join the real world. And it takes like my parents and a lot of people saying like, man, you got to go pursue baseball. And, um, you know, and I do, and I get hurt and I'm still thinking like, that's what we talked about the finance stuff. Like I still might just go do that. I don't know if I want to do 12 to 14 months of rehab sitting in Arizona where it's 120 degrees and my fiance is back home and I never get to see her. Like I might just go home and join the real world. No, my dad says, you got to stick it out, man. You were just in big league camp. Like you just pitched behind Clayton Kershaw. You got to see where this leads. Okay, dad, I'll do it. And um, man, long story short, I come back. I don't even do that well in double A. Everyone gets hurt the next spring training. And they basically have to throw me out there is how it went, man. Everyone got hurt. I was the last guy on the roster. Like strip, you're our fifth starter. Like, yeah, let's do this. Uh, I'm a big leaguer. And that's how it went, man. It, it, my story is, is very unique. It, it was not, you know, baseball or nothing for for me it was very much like will this be my my career path and it just ended up being that way how ridiculous is Kershaw is he like the best you've ever seen yeah I mean it it you know when I got to the big league so in 2016 Clayton was the best pitcher on the planet and there wasn't anybody close and what I get to see out of him, man, is for one, the relentless workload, but like, if, I mean, workload, the relentless work ethic. I mean, that dude has his days planned to the minute of what he needs to do to get the ball every fifth day and, and compete at a high level. Now, if you go watch Clayton, he will not blow you off the screen like a Jacob deGrom, like a Max Scherzer, like a Justin Verlander. He really doesn't. And you kind of know what he's going to throw. He's going to throw you glove side heaters and sliders off that kind of like a Robbie Ray, my teammate in, in uh, Toronto this year. And he just beats people to the punch and he outworks them and he outcompetes them with really kind of like big league to slightly above average big league stuff now in his low thirties. Um, and it's just awesome to watch, man. I mean, the dude is, is tough as nails and I think I'm a better baseball player just by having been around him and shadowing him for as long as I did. And I'm a better father in person because of my time around him. I mean, he just, I, I can't really speak highly about him and I, enough and I do it all the time to where now I feel bad because like, I feel like I've oversaturated it or in some way, like he, he is like one of the best human beings I've ever been around and best baseball players I've ever been around. And I'm just lucky for the years that I had. Uh, you just said it because I'll watch this stuff on TV. And obviously when you watch it on TV, it's like, it looks slow, but if you ever get in front of an 80 mile per hour fastball, you don't even see that thing. Like it's just yeah. like what just happened, but you watch this stuff and obviously you can see the big curveball, and that thing's like a monster. And it literally looks like he's like looping it in, yep. but the stuff isn't overwhelming. He's like, you know up mid 90s at highest but like 92 93 at this point you're like on a good what's day so yeah you're like what's so special here when you see Degrom hitting 101 and you're just like what is the big deal so it's fascinating it's like I grew up with Greg Maddox and you just mm -hmm. remember Maddox just outthought every hitter and it's just it's incredible to hear your description of Kershaw yeah it's and it's different than Maddox you know my teammate in LA and now Toronto Hunjin Rue is more like Maddox where it's 90 miles an hour 
but it's it's backdoor. It's living on the black all the time. Clayton is just like, I'm going to outcompete you, dude. Like, I'm, I'm going to throw 90, and I don't even care. There was a game against Cincinnati in 2017 where Clayton could barely walk. He had hurt his back, and we're all watching, like, why the heck is Clayton on the mound right now? He's throwing like 82 miles an hour. He's, he's waddling in and out of the dugout. We're like, get him out of there. And he goes five scoreless because he just like, he just goes to another level and, and out competes you and out wills you. And, and I just, I've never seen that from other people. Yeah. We're all big leaguers. We're all competitive athletes, but like Clayton has this other level that, you know, normal people just cannot get to. That's awesome, man. You have such a great personality. I, I mean, you're definitely going to be able to transition into whether it's broadcasting or podcast who knows where we're going to be in five years, man. Yeah. I don't even know what's going to exist, but it's, it's been fascinating to get to know you, man. I can definitely see where your future could lie in that realm. Have you taken like broadcasting boot camps or any of that shit yet? I have not. I've had some people reach out and say that I should, or I think that's like a different kind of agent that you get like a broadcasting agent. I've had people say like, Hey, maybe pursue a broadcasting agent and start getting your name out there and that kind of stuff. Uh, man, I, I tell you what, I got enough on my plate right now um, where I enjoy doing stuff like this. The podcast, we did one a week for two and a half years. We recently shelved it, um, but that thing was a blast and, and got to levels that we didn't really see we, us getting to, um, you know, which was a blast to do once a week, but that, that was a heavy workload too. Right now, I think like with the finance stuff, the baseball stuff and an eight month old son, like I'm pretty good and staying in those lanes and we'll see what comes later. By the way, how painful was it shelving it? It's like giving up a baby, isn't it? It was tough, man. It was tough. You know, we, we, I'd kind of exhausted my network and I got a little bit tired of going up to teammates and being like, man, we come on my podcast, you know, like that. I like doing that, but also at the same time, I dreaded doing that. But, um, you know, man, it, it, it was tough. It, it did feel like kind of you're, you're giving up your baby for a minute because we, we built that thing from the ground up. We really did. And my, my co-host did all the stuff on the back end. He grinded for two and a half years and uh, we talked about everything under the sun and we enjoyed every minute of it, but it was just kind of time to, to take a break and, and move on. He got a promotion. I got a son. We're just doing different things, but hopefully we'll bring it back sometime. What's your reaction to the Braves winning? Man, I love it. I really do. I mean, I, I've talked enough smack about the Astros in the last couple of years. We don't need to go down that road. I was obviously rooting for the Braves hard. Um, I have, so AJ Minter is a Texas A&M Aggie. He was there just after me, but the, the Aggies are like 0-7 in the World Series. Waka lost one, I lost two. Uh, the one that we won, I technically wasn't in. Uh, um, someone else, had lost, you know, Naquin lost one or two. Like Aggies, we just had the worst luck, but we had one on each side. We had Brooks Raley for the Astros and AJ Minter for the Braves. So we're like, all right, Aggies, one, one of them's getting a World Series. Um, you know, really the Astros, man, their bats just went cold. They, they you know, credit the Braves pitching for sure. I mean, those guys went out there and competed their tails off. But the Astros' bats went from the best in the league for the whole season. I mean, they didn't strike out. They hit for power. They hit for average. They slugged. I mean, it, they, they were relentless, one through nine. And the Braves just shut them down. And that's how you go win a World Series. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool for them, man. That city, from what I understand, uh, is one of the best sports towns as far as, like, how their city will just lock onto a team and just love them to death. And uh, sounds like that's the case. So that's awesome. Brother, this has been a blast. Congratulations. You got a great personality, man. Bright future with all this stuff. Thanks for a fantastic chat, Ross. Arthur, thank you, man. I appreciate it. See you, brother. Nice meeting you. You too, bud. Thanks, See you, dude. See you, man. All right, folks. That was, of course, Ross Stripling, full-time financial advisor. So if you want to watch him pitch or just go have someone sell you a good mutual fund, Ross is the man. 
That's it for another episode of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. Make sure to subscribe, rate, show us the love, follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at endless double underscore hustle. On Instagram, at endless hustle pod. Me personally, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter, at it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. We're finishing up the year with two brand new episodes next week, taking into the new year with some really, really, really great guests. You know, we weren't going to leave you hanging. We're finishing up 2021 on a high note and can't wait to share who they are. We'll see you next week. Have a great holiday. Merry Christmas, if that's what you celebrate. But no matter what, have a happy holiday. Stay safe. We'll see you next week.